So then, Marcus, we've got to do a advert to go on the Web 2.0 podcast. Oh, yeah? What's the Web 2.0 podcast? Well, it's this podcast for kind of high-end developers and designers that kind of work on cutting-edge web design and want to know about all the latest innovations. I see. So, not for us, then. Bugworld.com. the podcast about web design that even your clients could listen to. But you never know, you might learn something new yourself. B-O-A-G, world.com. to the Web 2.0 show with your hosts, Josh Owens and Chris Saylor. We're a show about the new web, the latest thoughts and technology behind internet development and content delivery. Welcome to episode 18. We have Eric Meyer with us. Your website is meyerweb.com, is that correct? That is correct. All right. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Eric, where you're from, some work you've done in the past, that, that type of thing. As Bill Cosby once said, I started out as a child. Born in Massachusetts, but uh, we moved around a lot. I basically grew up in Ohio, about halfway between Cleveland and Columbus, uh, Ohio, in the, the Lexington, Ohio area. So if anyone listening to this podcast is from Lexington, I'll be deeply shocked because it's a very small town. <laughs> I went to school in Cleveland at Case Western Reserve University, which they're now calling Case. And... After I graduated, basically got a job as a hardware jockey for a library technology division within the university. And so around 1993, when Mosaics came out, uh, betas were coming out, one of the other guys in the department, a guy by the name of Jim Nauer, who's still a good friend of mine, uh, showed it to me, basically showed me Mosaic, and I was just completely hooked. So that's how I got involved with the web. Uh, While I was at Case doing web stuff, that was basically the beginning of 1994 through March of 2000. And so I worked on, uh, I was the basically the campus web coordinator for CASE, uh, was responsible for cwru.edu during that time frame. I'm not responsible for it now. Was part of a number of, you know, parts of numbers of projects at CASE, uh, the Encyclopedia of Cleveland History and the Dictionary of Cleveland Biography. We actually helped the two authors uh, in the history department at Case, put the entirety of both books online uh, that's still up there at ech.cwru.edu, um, ECH standing for Encyclopedia of Cleveland History. We're pretty sure it was the first urban encyclopedia available in its entirety on the web. Uh, there, were, there were others who had excerpts up. Uh, we took the entire thing and put it up there, which was interesting because that was, you know, like 1997, 98, and we were sort of making it up as we went. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, anything you uh, wanted to know about the history of Cleveland is pretty much in there. I guess things really got got going for me though in terms of having a a, a, a higher profile in the web community. Uh, right around the time I left Case, uh, ironically enough, the two weren't really linked. It's just that's how the timing worked out. Uh, when I published my first book, the uh, O'Reilly CSS: The Definitive Guide, that's when people started to know who I was outside of just the CSS community. So since leaving the university, I, you know, I worked uh, for Netscape for a couple years in there, and now I'm on my own. There was a bunch of other stuff in there, but I don't know. I, you know I've been on the web now for oh, 13 years or so, or something like that. So it all starts to blend together. Now, you're a CSS guru. I mean, everybody pretty much considers you, you know, the guru. So tell us a little bit about how you actually attain that status. 
oh, I've just been around a really long time and never really, never really quit. Coming this May, it will have been 10 years since I first saw and started working with CSS, May of 2006. I, I first saw CSS in May of 1996 at the Fifth International World Wide Web Conference. I uh, had, hadn't even heard of it before. Just happened to attend a panel about CSS, uh, which was part of the W3C track, and was just completely blown away. So from there, I started trying to use CSS, and it being 1996, and there was only one web browser that did CSS at all, and that was IE3, which in hindsight did it really badly. But, of course, at the time, there was nothing else to compare it to. Uh, it wasn't doing what I thought it should. You know, I would write CSS according to what the specification said, and it would do something else. And I would think, you know, am I doing this wrong? Is it the browser's limited? What's the deal? So I started creating these test pages for myself. And being sort of the obsessive type that I can be sometimes, I ended up creating test pages for basically every property in the CSS1 specification. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it was it was just one of those, well, I, you know, Obviously, some of this doesn't work, so I may as well find out what works and what doesn't so I don't waste my time trying to, you know, do stuff that, that doesn't work yet. So based on that, I threw up some support information on the case web server and, you know, announced it in various CSS groups online. Kind of one thing led to another. The charts moved over to web, the late limited web review. Um, I started writing articles for them. And then, as it turns out, Songline Studios, which was responsible for web review, uh, was a partner of O'Reilly, something I didn't know at the time, actually. And they literally, their cubicle farms were adjacent to each other in the same office building. So when the O'Reilly guys were looking for someone to write a CSS book, they wandered over to the web review guys and said, hey, do you know anyone who knows anything about CSS? So that's how I got to write the book. And then once you write a book, uh, as Jeff Fien once told me, you know, you start getting asked to speak at conferences and, you know, other publishers get in touch with you and say, hey, how'd you like to write for us? And, you know, assuming that you've written about anything that anyone's interested in, which CSS, fortunately, people were interested in. So yeah. so it's kind of like a snowball effect. Yeah, it really is. The, the progression basically is lucky enough to be there early, publish a lot of information for free, get the connections basically to to, to publish a major work, and then... From there, it, it really just, yes, yeah, snowballs. Yeah. So, now, you know. uh, I have kind of an interesting question for you. Do you think, I don't are you familiar with 37 Signals? Familiar might be a little too familiar, but I know of their work. Yeah. Okay. I don't, did you see their recent book that they released, The Getting Real? I haven't actually read it yet. No. Well, um, they had, a, I guess, an interesting post on there about uh, self-publishing and the fact that, you know, they, they wrote this PDF and self-published it, and it's almost pure profit for them. Do you think that that's something that, I guess, influential authors like maybe yourself that speaks on a certain subject like CSS could do and, you know, instead of going through O'Reilly or some other publisher, just release it on your own? Uh, not only could do, but will do. Really? I, I'm already planning that, yeah. Nice. I, and I've been talking about this with representatives of various computer book publishers, and some of them get it and some of them don't. Some of them understand that their business model is, is in danger of collapsing, basically. Right. Um, that what's happening to the music industry in slow motion is going to happen to them in full force. quick motion. Yeah, yeah. it's going to happen full force because... Well, I think it's already starting with uh, the Pragmatic Programmer series that they're releasing. Right. Those guys are doing good work and, and starting with the, the beta testing books or whatever they're calling them mm -hmm. now, beta books. Uh, yeah, although basically I, I think, well, 
you know, for years people have been saying, oh, print-on-demand is going to completely destroy the publishing industry, and it keeps not happening. Uh, I think there are two basic reasons for that. One is that until recently, print-on-demand technology was just too darn expensive. I could have done a print-on-demand book four years ago, but it would have cost $100. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> that really wasn't feasible. Now, when you say print-on-demand, you mean services like Lulu. I do. I mean exactly services like Lulu. Okay. That's, that's the, that's the print-on-demand service I've looked at the most closely. I've actually been looking at it for, I first looked at it a, a year or so ago. They've, they've just, seems to me they've done better and better. But anyway, the other thing is that the, the general publishing industry is not going to be destroyed by print-on-demand, at least not anytime soon. But the computer book publishing industry is in a lot more immediate danger of that because we're to the point now where, for example, you know, I could, I could do what the 37 Singles guys did, you know, basically write a book, not even a full book. It could, it could be, you know, a, a short book, like 50 pages or 60 pages, something like that. It's just a very specific look at a very specific thing. Create a PDF of that, put it up on Lulu, and then people can buy the PDF as a download, or they can buy it as a print book for the cost of, you know, the PDF download plus the printing costs. It's up to the user. They can have it electronically. They can have it in print. Or, you know, they could, of course, download the PDF and print it themselves. It's, you know, that's up to them. And that wouldn't be pure profit, but it would be, under the Lulu terms, uh, every one of those downloads would be 80% profit for me. Lulu takes 20%, and I get 80%. And then for print-on-demand, I get the same amount of money. It's just the user ends up paying what they would have paid plus the print and shipping costs. So if you look at the computer book industry, the, the sort of the typical starting contracts, like the, the standard contract that, that publishers tend to start with, is uh, calls for 10% royalties. But that's 10% of what they sell it for, which is almost always half uh, half of the cover price because they sell you know 99% of their books to wholesalers at about 50% of the cover price. So, liter- so really, an author makes 5% of the cover price for every you know physical book sold at those terms. 80% is 16 times that. So I could do a PDF, sell one-sixteenth as many copies and make the same amount of money. And right. If I do any better than one-sixteenth as many copies, I've done better financially. And so I think the other reason that the computer book industry is going to have a problem is that more and more people are gaining reputations purely online. Time was, and I completely benefited from this, don't get me wrong, uh, that you published a book, and people take you very seriously, and you start, like I say, getting speaking offers, and other publishers contact you, and you know you get book sales, and all that, all those sorts of things, assuming that the book is at all, you know, marketed in any fashion. But we're not really at that point now. We're we're at a point where someone can have, you know, blogged for a year or two about their field, let's say web design, and have enough of a following that they can self-publish and do fairly well. They might, you know, they might not sell. 15,000 copies of their book, but they only have to sell 1,000 copies of their of their online book to do as well as financially as they would have if they'd sold 15,000 copies with a traditional publisher. So, you know, someone like uh, Jason Santa Maria, just to, you know, someone that I've worked with, has never published a book, but has done enough work and, and blogged enough and has enough of a following that I think he would do very well basically self-publishing or e-publishing or whatever you want to call it. And, you know, there are, there are other people... In our in our field that that are in similar situations, that's where I'm headed. Just because I do have enough of a reputation that I think self-publishing could work very well for me, and with that, you know, I don't have to worry about you know someone else's milestone deadlines. I can basically write the book at my own pace and publish it when I think it's ready. 
And another side benefit of self-publishing in, in a cheap format like PDF is there's a lot of obscure technical subjects that aren't feasible to publish in, in a real book. Um, that would be great for for you know in PDF. PDF publishing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and also like I was saying with like a 40, 50, 60 page work, that's you know a work of let's say let's say I wanted to write 50 pages about the in the Cascade, which I wouldn't do because nobody would buy it except as a sleeping, but Let's just say that I did that. You know, that's too long to put into, like, a 300-page book. That's just too big. It takes up too much of the book. But it's too small mm -hmm. to publish on its own through a traditional publisher. So, you know, yeah, someone can do 50 pages on something really obscure and technical. They might only sell 500 copies, but if every one of those 500 copies makes them 20 bucks, they'll, they'll make $10,000, you know. Mm -hmm. um, if they actually sell decently that could be someone's yearly salary. And, you know, obviously they're not going to sell 500 or 1,000 copies unless people have heard of them. But if people have heard of them, you know, great. You know, that's that's sort of where it goes. Just because, you know, traditional publishing, you do sort of get forced into, you know, certain page counts or, you know, uh, you know, you, you, if, if, I, if I were to go to a publisher and say, I want to do 50 pages on how I did the Alista part design from a code perspective, They'd say, mm -hmm. that sounds great if you could combine it with five other things just like it, and then we can have a 250-page book. Yeah. I, I, I don't want to do that. I just want to do the one thing, <laughs> you know, so. Now, Pragmatic Programmers actually has a, a series they just started called uh, Fridays, which are mm -hmm. smaller smaller books like that that they're publishing on PDF. Right. What are, the, what are they asking for that? I haven't actually looked at it that closely. Um, I, I, I don't know the specs, actually. Oh, okay. Because that'll be the other interesting thing will be people who self-publish trying to figure out what they should charge. Yeah, well, I think I think the uh, 37 Signals guys have kind of found that price point, as has Pragmatic Programmer. I think they charge like 20 bucks for their full-size PDF books that they release online. I'm not sure about their Friday series. Yeah, and it's 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 interesting because you know you can say to yourself, well, I wrote a 50-page PDF that's only worth 10 bucks, but you know if you try to charge 10 bucks, people are gonna look at that and go. This is only worth ten dollars. Do I really want to waste my time with it? To so get into that whole prices signal thing, and that's—I don't think anyone really knows exactly what they're doing. Everyone's just sort of guessing. Oh, um, I found it. Uh, a Friday is a short, highly focused book. Same high quality. Blah blah blah. Seven fifty to ten dollars. Yeah. See, there's—I mean, that, that sounds really attractive, but I—I found for myself with, for example, uh, Donationware or Shareware, if something is really cheap it's almost more trouble than it's worth to register it and, and buy it. It's like I could go to all the effort of paying $6 through PayPal using my credit card, or I could just keep clicking past the register thing. Whereas if it were, you know, 1995, if, even though it's more money, I might actually, like, feel more committed to doing it. Yeah, so, but I also think on the flip side of that, I, I, I know that Chris and I have, we use Icon Buffet all the time. They offer a $5 icon series, and we usually snag those up. It's like, hey, this is 5 bucks, but, you know, it's awesome to have these icons around in case we need them later. True, but in that case, you have sort of an ongoing relationship with them, right? Yeah, our credit card is stored there, so we just go right. there and, you know, once a week That's we... True. <laughs> Click, boom. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah, I you know, in situations like that, maybe the Friday series will benefit from that, where people will basically just set up with pragmatic programmers. You know, here's my information... And then just any time one of these things comes out that looks like it's kind of cool, you know, I'll buy it, and then every month they can charge my credit card. I mean, you know, if that works out, then that, that would be a great model. 
personally, I don't know if I'm going to go there right away or if I'll get there eventually or whatever. I don't want to say that in all of this, we've basically been talking about publishers, traditional publishers, as if they're completely useless in the new world, and they're not. There are basically three things I think a publisher offers authors that they will have difficulty getting elsewhere. The first is marketing, because publishers typically know something about marketing. Now, whether or not they actually use that knowledge for a given book is sometimes uh, an empty proposition. It might be the case that, a, that an individual author could do a better job of marketing his or her book than an actual traditional publisher could. It depends on the publisher. But that's, you know, at least in theory, something a publisher can offer. The second thing is uh, access to the educational market, which is really hard to get if you're not a publisher. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you've written a book that, that could qualify as a textbook, you can have a much easier time selling it through a traditional publisher than you are, you know, on your own. The third thing is editing. You know, let's be real. Some authors really need editors. In the in the fiction world, Tom Clancy and Stephen King come to mind, but they sell so many zillions of copies that no editor would dare touch their stuff anyway. In the, you know, the computer book field, or most fields, copy editing is a, is a valuable service. And authors who can edit themselves then that's one less thing that they actually need a publisher for. For authors who can't, working with a publisher probably makes more sense. But even at that, given the current business model of traditional computer book publishers, you know, an author might look at it and say, I can keep 80 per- if I get to keep 80% of every one of these I sell, and I'm pr- fairly confident that I can market to you know, the audience I'm targeting well enough to do, you know, I can hire my own copy editor, and I'll still make more money. It'll be interesting, you know, like I say, from what I can tell, some publishers get it and some publishers don't. And the ones that get it are the ones who are going to move more towards, you know, basically being sort of like a Lulu, except offering things like editing services. and Yeah, traditional publishing services. Right, but offering a much better return for authors. Uh, right. Because if they don't, if they don't, basically, I, it seems to me that their market is going to be new authors, people who want to publish so that they can build a reputation. And once they build a reputation, why would they do that anymore? Right. If someone's just getting started in CSS, do you have any tips or tricks or um, helpful hints to kind of guide them in the right direction? Besides uh, getting your books, of course. (laughs) Well, it depends on how they learn. Just getting started. I think just getting started, what, what people really need to do is really learn the basics. I know that most people who learn CSS do it because they want to make pages look pretty. But if they really want to write CSS well, what they need to learn is how to write selectors efficiently and how to structure their markup so that they can write efficient selectors. Because it's really easy to just slap classes all over the place and then just style the classes directly, but that makes the markup really ugly and cluttered and bigger than it needs to be. So, I mean, learning that kind of stuff, it's boring, but it's kind of necessary. Once you get past that, uh, Russ Weekly has some really great tutorials. There's the list tutorial and the float tutorial and the select tutorial that I think are really nice because they're they're just really digestible little tutorials on what various things mean and how you use them. For people who like to have a reference for the entire language, not a reference but a sort of a guide, an in-depth, all of the warts and nooks and crannies guide, my O'Reilly book people seem to like, at least most people, not everyone obviously, for those who are hands-on learners, there are a bunch of books. I've written a couple. There, there are certainly others out there. Uh, it's, it's interesting. Once upon a time, that question, and once upon a time being 2000 to 2001, when people ask that question, I would say, well, as much as I hate to sound like I'm puffing myself up, it's kind of 
the books, the book that I wrote, you know, and there, cause there weren't that many other books that were out and current, but now there are a bunch of CSS books. I mean, there's the Zen of CSS design, which is really nice for people who have more of a design bent. There's uh, cascading style sheets, uh, separating content from presentation, which is on a second edition. There's the original Hokum Lee and Burt Boss, uh, Cascading style sheets, uh, which is on, I think it's third or fourth edition now, but they've updated it recently. And just there's a whole lot of, of choices. So, you know, it's really go to a bookstore, flip through the ones that you can get your hands on to see which one looks like it would be the best for you and and, and get that if, if, if that's what you want. But the, the select tutorial online is really, and the flow tutorial and, and list tutorial are, are really great places to start. And I'd say the other place is uh, the cssdiscuss.org wiki. We'll drop a link into in the show notes. Yeah. There you go. If you go to css-discuss.org, that's the website for a mailing list. Joining the mailing list isn't really necessary, although you, people certainly can if they want. Uh, they have to be prepared to get 50 or 60 messages a day. The, the real point is to, of going to that website, uh, in this case, is to look for the wiki link uh, up in the toolbar at the top. If you click on that, that takes you to the wiki that the CSS Discuss community has been basically building for the last three years sort of collaboratively, organically as they go. And there's just a whole ton of stuff in there from basic to advanced, uh, you know, CSS hacking, and places to go to learn CSS and, you know, what people think of various books and sort of both sides of the issues of how do you size text and should you use tables or divs and just all kinds of stuff. So that would be the other place I would send people. Josh and I always ask our uh, the people we're interviewing about, about process because we're fascinated with process, how other people you know go through and, and do, do their thing. What's your process for doing CSS for a website? The way that I, when I'm doing CSS for a website, what I'm usually doing is I'm working off of a designer's comp, usually a Photoshop comp, but sometimes it's a flat file. And I'm my task is to make that into real markup in CSS. Um, this is what I've been doing uh, with, with Happy Cog Studios. Uh, my consultancy and Happy Cog are strategically partnered or whatever it is that we call that. We basically work together. So that's what I did, for example, for Magnolia. Uh, Greg's story had done the visual design and sent me Photoshop files in which he had done his, his design. And so I looked at those and, and figured out how am I going to turn this into markup and what CSS do I have to write to make that markup look like this comp as much as possible. So it's really a, a case of looking at what the designer has done and trying to figure out what the structural hierarchy is from, from the visual hierarchy they've established. And then from there, it's just a case of sort of writing the basic CSS to make the pieces of the layout go where they need to go and then just drilling down more and more, uh, de- down to more and more details so that you know, after I've placed the the various layout boxes where they need to go, you know, I'll start working on the on the, on the uh, I'll do the sort of the generic colors and the fonts and that sort of thing, and then I'll start working on the first box and making it look the way it needs to, and then the the second piece and the third piece and whatever. That's that's sort of my generic process. What tools do you use? Uh, I use BB Edit and web browsers, and that's about it. Well, I mean, I use. Photoshop, Photoshop, obviously, yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to, to open up the Photoshop comps and to pull out graphic elements if I need them to. Really, it's uh, all just pretty much uh, 100% of my of my markup and CSS and even JavaScript development is done in BB Edit. It's all hand-authored. You say you use Photoshop to pull out the graphic elements. 
I actually did something similar when I was doing the Steel Pixel website. I had done it all in Photoshop and then wanted to pull it out. Have you found an easy way to just show all the elements you want and pull those all out into separate files all at once? Is that even possible? I haven't found an easy way to do it. <laughs> uh, basically, it's a, it's a, usually it's a matter of isolating whatever it is I'm trying to pull out you know, from everything else, pulling it into its own Photoshop file, and then saving it out using the save to web function. So oh, okay. nothing, no, yeah, nothing automated or, or anything cool like that. It's, it's pretty much a, a matter of, you know, finding yeah. the, the, the bits that I need. And what is it? I don't even remember what it's called, but there's a... There's export a, to layers. Yeah, it's not that, actually. I never touch export to layers. Um is it shift option command C or something like that? Shift command C. Basically the make a copy of whatever it is I've highlighted using the marquee tool as right. a single flat image. So I'll 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 do that copy and then paste it into a new Photoshop window and, and, and save as web, that sort of thing. It's it's I, I don't even remember what the things are called anymore because it's programmed into muscle memory. You know, it's just you know <laughs> Get get the selection that I want, and then boom, and all of a sudden I'm in the save to web thing, and I I don't even have to think anymore. It's just you know fire that macro in my brain, and it happens. See now, actually, I like Fireworks. I know it's not as powerful as Photoshop, but Macromedia Fireworks actually has a special layer um, mm-hmm. that you can overlay and make slices. And right. so what ha- and so you can actually name the slices. It's a special layer. And those actually get exported as whatever you set it as. And it actually flattens the image, flattens your layers, and turns it into a JPEG or a GIF or a ping or whatever you need it to, need it to do. And it, I find it's really awesome. But um, I, I, I barely know it. I'm, I'm not a graphic designer, but it, I found it to be really cool. Yeah, I've seen people use that. It's, uh, I'm sure if I'd learned it that way, I would, I would do it. It's just, <laughs> you know, I learned using Photoshop because, well, I mean, I remember Photoshop when it was called Digital Darkroom. So, and I, you know, when I first started doing web stuff, we didn't even have editors, right? I mean, my first web page was, well, for the first couple years of writing web, writing web pages, I wrote wrote them all in Microsoft Word and did save as text. You needed a text editor, and that was pretty much, that was the draw. I had Microsoft Word available, micro, you know, Word for Mac, and so... Of course, never save as HTML. <laughs> yeah, I never, that's I never did that. But of course, you know, when I when I did my first web page, uh, you know, when I did my first HTML document in December of 1993, there was no such thing as save to HTML and Word or, or really anything else except for, mm-hmm. you know, maybe a few Unix tools. But I wasn't a Unix guy, so there you go. Hmm. Now, back to um, process and tools and mm-hmm. stuff. What what web browsers do you currently test in? Really, it's Firefox, Safari. Internet Explorer for Windows version 6, 5.5, and 5.0 if the project demands it. I mean, I usually test in in 5.0 even if the project doesn't demand it, but how seriously I take layout problems there sort of depends on the project demands. So you have some old computers laying around? Or do you use some of the newer testing sites like SiteVista or something like that, browser cam? I have Virtual PC. Ah. That's what I do. Uh, Virtual PC, Windows 2000, Professional Edition. I just have three different drive images. One has IE6, one has IE5.5, and one has IE5.0. And I think the IE5.0 also has Netscape 4, but I haven't launched it in so long. <laughs> I'm not, I, I don't even know for sure uh, if it still works. So, Have um, you tried out any of the, the web services that do it for you? 
No, actually, I haven't. I know a, a friend of mine uses Browser Cam and really likes it. Uh, he's a Windows guy, though, so he doesn't have the option of emulating the Mac OS on his Windows machine, at least not yet. Soon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, for me, Windows PC, uh, Virtual PC just made the most sense because, you know, I am a Mac user, so when I needed to get a new computer, when I when I struck out on my own, it was one of those, should I get a Windows machine or a Mac machine, a Mac laptop? Well, I'm a Mac guy, so I want the Mac, so should I also buy a Windows machine? Heck no. Why wouldn't I just buy Virtual PC? <laughs> so... And actually, I'm I'm really looking forward to getting uh, when the when the time comes to to replace my current machine, replacing it with uh, a, an Intel-based Mac. Yeah, Mac having, Pro. Right. Well, or or whatever they're called. By the time I I actually do upgrade and having virtual <laughs> virtual PC that can run, you know, on top of an Intel chip, and so therefore be really speedy. Now I got to admit, virtual PC running on my G G4 still a little pokey. Yeah, or even you could, uh, I don't know if you've seen Boot Camp, but you can actually dual boot into XP now. Right, I've, I've seen that, and it's it's a possibility, although to, to bring a name back from earlier, Jim Nauer was, was pointing out to me last night over dinner that you don't really need to dual boot if you can do virtual PC, you know, on top of an Intel chip, because it's, it's going to be fast, you know, it's going to be more than fast enough, probably. True. Um, you know, so rather than... It would take the time to boot, you know, into a different operating system and then boot back. It's like, you know, fire up virtual PC, just keep going. You know, you still have your Mac OS. You can jump back and forth between the two. And then when you're done with the PC, you just quit virtual PC and you're done to that, you know, for that point. So it's it would be less disruptive to the workflow was his point. I think he's probably onto something there. So assuming uh, virtual PC's performance on the Intel Macs is, you know, anything even remotely resembling reasonable, yeah, that's the that's the direction I'll go. I probably wouldn't bother with the dual boot. Now, but, you, know. you got to play with IE7 when you went to Mix 06. Mm-hmm. I guess tell us what you think about it, and do you think that people are going to run into a lot of problems with their hacks on their websites when IE7 is released? I mean, how do you how do you envision people getting around that kind of thing? Well, I don't think that most people are going to have that problem, honestly. As an example, Andy Clark, stuff and nonsense, all that malarkey, that guy. He has he he put up a, a blog post recently where he had screenshots of his site and a couple of uh, and a CSS, CSS Zen Garden design uh, in IE7, the the current IE7 beta that that anyone can download right now, assuming they have XP or a Vista beta, and it rendered pretty much exactly like Firefox does. And those are both sites that use CSS hacks to send certain styles to IE6 and different styles to browsers like Firefox, okay? So, you know, they're, those style sheets are just full of what we call CSS hacks, but IE7 basically acted like Firefox, which is sort of what I've been thinking would happen, assuming that they, you know, did a good job with it for a while now, is that IE7 from a sort of a CSS and a, and a standards layout point of view will just sort of be like another Firefox, Um you know, obviously they're going to be different. Just kind of ignore the hacks. Yeah, basically it skips over the hacks, but it it does things correctly. So you know, like that. I, Shocking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I wouldn't think to claim that this will happen for absolutely 100% of web pages out there. There are going to be combinations of hacks, I'm sure, that are going to cause people trouble. But I think it's going to be more of a non-event than an event, and. Because uh, the the current IE7 beta that's up is has been publicly stated to be layout complete by the IE team. Basically, they they are not going to add any new 
layout features between now and final release. We have time to figure out, you know, what sites are causing problems and what combinations of hacks are causing problems and figure out how to work around those before IE7 goes final. I've been impressed with the IE teams, well, first of all, their their existence after being basically dormant or, or close to non-existent for so many years. And also with their 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 commitment to treat web developers like customers, effectively. You know, customers who have a claim on the browser doing things that won't upset their business model effectively. Which is, of course, not to say that they're going to be our vassals and do our every bidding, but you know, they're they're at least thinking about it and doing things like, you know, freezing work on the layout engine well in advance of the final release of the browser so that, you know, it, it isn't one of these, well, IE7 came out today and it broke a whole bunch of websites, but too bad because it's already rolled out, you know. So they're, they're, they're definitely working to avoid that sort of thing and to, to increase standard support to the extent that they're able. I have to admit, I know some of the people on the IE team. One of them, Chris Wilson, I've known for years. Uh, he's been there for years. In fact, he was uh, one of the people presenting on that CSS panel that I saw almost 10 years ago now. And he was working on the IE team, I believe, even then. So he's he's been there. He's been at Microsoft for a very long time. And somehow, despite all that, and despite being the person who interacted the most with the standards community and therefore reaped most of the abuse, still is very much committed to uh, standard support and to doing the right thing. So I, I, I can only imagine how he's coped with that sort of stress. I, I assume paintball or something, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, I can't say enough about how much I respect him for, for sticking with it and all, and, you know, still wanting to do the right thing, despite all the abuse that's been heaped on him by members of the very same community that he's trying to help. Was there anything else that you're working on that you wanted to talk about? You mean, uh, you mean, uh, you mean other than Magnolia? Yeah. Other than Magnolia. Things I'm working on. You know, honestly, right now, uh, I really, Outside of the just a little sort of personal projects that I do, things like S5, which is my little browser-based slide shift thing, and the WordPress gatekeeper plugin that I wrote, little Google Maps hacks that I do and stuff like that, just sort of for fun. Besides that, uh, I'm really only doing two things. I'm doing the strategic partner stuff with uh, Jeff, and I'm doing speaking and, and training, which uh, the major portion of that now is an event apart, which I'm also doing with Jeff Seldman. Uh, which is a, our, our little our road show thing that we do. Uh, we just had one, actually, at the beginning of this week in Atlanta, and we have one coming up in Chicago. As, oh, yeah, yeah, I saw that. As this interview is being done, anyway. Um, that's in June of 2006. We'll be in Chicago, and we're, we're working on other cities. I, I hope we can yeah, announce yeah. them soon. But um, And you're also doing, you're giving a workshop over in London for Carson Workshops, aren't you? That's correct. I actually just, uh, I just announced that on my website today. He they, they announced at the end of last week. But I'm also doing a bunch of conferences. I was at South by Southwest and Mix 06, and I just did one yesterday uh, here in Cleveland, where I live, called Nauticon. There's, I'm now, I, now, I now also today uh, managed to post that I'll be speaking at IceWeb in Reykjavik, Iceland, at the end of April. And yeah, I saw that about Alex Robinson's article, The One True Layout. Are you going to be yeah. publishing any of your notes on, on that online? Uh, possibly. We'll see once I see my notes. <laughs> I'd like to hear. I'd like to hear your thoughts on, on that. 
Uh, well, I mean, the, the 50,000 foot view is that they're very interesting techniques that I sort of hate him with jealousy that he came up with them and nobody, and I didn't. <laughs> you know, after, after I've been working with CSS for only nine years, nine and a half years, and he came up with this stuff. Um, but also that they're, they're kind of bleeding edge and it's really easy to cut your throat with them uh, if you're not careful. It, it, depends, it depends on the circumstance. As an example, main bankers can cause problems, not with the any order columns, but with the uh, equal height columns technique that he put in as part of that article. So, you know, but but it's it's very interesting stuff, and I, I think it's I think it's fantastic work on his part. And even if it doesn't turn out that those techniques are widely used for you know whatever reason, if it's you know browser limitations or if he just pushed CSS a little further than it's supposed to go, I think they're very valuable for showing you know hey, CSS should be able to do this stuff, and this is how far we had to push it in order to make that happen. It sort of points the way to, well, here's what people want to do. You know, how can we enhance CSS so that that's that. possible? Right. Right. Cool. So, so if uh, if we have a bar camp in Cincinnati, you want to you wanna drive down here and give a talk? Oh, uh, you know, it's, that's entirely <laughs> possible. I actually, um, my father grew up in Cincinnati, and I, and I have relatives there. You know, it's... Uh, if the timing worked out, there's the possibility that I could, you know, come down there with my family and we could see relatives and such, uh, especially with the especially with the bar camp model, because I'm assuming you're not going to pay speakers. Right. <laughs> and you know, as 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 much as I hate to sound like a greedy uh, capitalist uh, pig, I'm kind of a greedy capitalist pig, uh, just because you know it's it's one of those things where family's got to eat. Yeah. yeah, the family's got to eat, and the house mortgage has got to get paid, and you know it's. There's only, like, well, the thing I did in Cleveland uh, uh, yesterday, they don't pay speakers, and even if they did, I'd probably turn it down because I, I like to do sort of, you know, grassroots, bar camp, not a con type stuff for free if I can, but I can only do so many of those before it, you know, it starts to not really make sense from a feeding my family point of view. So, right. I, yeah, I mean, you know, if, if we could make it work out, then great, but if not, then maybe some other time. Yeah, Josh and I have started kicking around the idea of doing one later this year. I, I actually occasionally I think about man I should try to do a bar camp Cleveland, and then every time I think about it I think to myself yeah and who's going to organize that? Yeah, it's <laughs> a lot of freaking work. Yeah, it really is. I mean, organizing an event apart is a lot of work too. But at least there, uh, you know, I'm, I know I'm going to get paid for it. Um, right, get a lot of help too. Well, actually, uh, when it comes to event apart, it's really uh, me and Jeffrey and local volunteers. Really? Uh, yeah, we. We haven't gotten to the point yet, although we will probably will soon, of hiring uh, sort of an event management firm of some type. So, yeah, the the venues are researched and picked by me pretty much, with some in, wow. with some input from Jeffrey. So, yeah, we're not we're not we don't have employees um, mm-hmm. or or even consultants, but we are getting to the point where it's clearly a model that works. I mean, you know. We've, we sold out the first two, and the third one's on track to sell out pretty well in advance of its early bird of the early bird uh, deadline. It's yeah, it's to the point now where, where in order to have them happen more often than like every three or four months, we're just we need to hire somebody to so that we can say here are the cities where we want to go, and here are the dates that are ideal, and just figure out which cities should go and which dates, and find us good venues, and we'll go do it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was going to say, back in our younger days, Josh and I used to organize 120-person uh, LAM parties with sponsors and prizes and, and volunteers and all that, and actually once a month. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so we're, that, that was a lot of work, so I imagine an event of parts, quite another level. Yeah, we're, yeah we're hoping um, we can pull off a... 
Well, we we have we're both blessed and cursed in a way because uh, we 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 only have basically uh, one or two sponsors typically. Although that's we're about to increase that. And Media Temple, who's been there all along, and uh, Adobe is now sponsoring Event Park. And nice. right, so you know, a land party with sponsors and prizes and all kinds of stuff. That's that's its own challenge because you know you if you're going to have a 120 person land party, you got to have 120 places for people to sit and. That's a lot of work. See, in our case, we power, yeah, yeah, power, power and the networking and 120 computers. And in our mm-hmm. case, it's pretty much uh, we need a projector and we need uh, mic- microphones and we need seats. And, yeah. you know, it's the, the challenge for us, though, is um, one of the things that, that we're trying to do with the event apart is not have it be sort of a typical, you know, ballroom in, the, in an airport hotel, you know, like – like like you see with with a lot of, of traveling shows because um, Jeff and I have been to a bunch of conferences and we've been to it we've spoken in a bunch of hotel ballrooms and I understand why conference organizers do that but it's just boring as hell and so you know we pick places like the Franklin Institute which is a science museum in Philadelphia or or, or the uh, 755 Club at Turner Field in Atlanta being a little out of the ordinary gi- giving people you know a reason to actually remember the venue. Uh, in addition to the event. And, you know, it's nice for us, too, because, you know, we get to go to Turner Field and hang out at the 755 Club and, and you know, talk there. And in Chicago, we're doing it at a in an auditorium at a place called the Gleacher Center, which is actually where 37 Signals does their Getting Real workshops and where Carson Workshops did their, does their Chicago shows. So it's, it's a really nice venue. It's, it's, it's a part of the University of Chicago, so they have sort of more lecture halls. But it's right on the river, right downtown in Chicago. So, like, if the weather's nice, you know, during the lunch break, people can go and they can sort of walk along the river and all that kind right. of stuff. So, yeah, it's that's that's as traditional as we've gotten so far. And, and uh, we, we'd love to do it in an art gallery someday, but so far we, we haven't found an art gallery that has the kind of uh, Internet connectivity and and, uh, and ability for setup that, that we'd really like. But We found yeah. universities to be really good venues for um... – Basically, providing power and, and you know network and, and things like that in space. <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, it's it's definitely someplace we look. I, we were looking. We're looking at Los Angeles. That's one of the cities that we've we've promised we'll go to. And, and I was looking. Basically, where I start in a given city is things like art museums and science museums and natural history museums, and usually try to find a visitor convention bureau site and, and do that kind of thing. But that's you know that's that's what we're headed for. In in Atlanta, I actually really wanted to do it at the George Aquarium. Uh, which just opened, but um, they never bothered to return any of my calls or emails, so we didn't do it there. Well, thanks for being on the show, Eric. Hey, thanks yeah, for having me on the show. It was a lot of fun, and hey, Skype-erific. This has been a Steel Pixel production. For more information about Steel Pixel, you can check out steelpixel.com, or for more information about the show, feel free to check out web20show.com. That's web 20 San Francisco has enough conferences. They're, 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 they're swimming in conferences. Um, <laughs> New York, too, is just you know, swimming in events. So. <laughs>